This is now the second time that I have had the uh, privilege to preach on a passage from Matthew's Gospel which deals with the issue of faith and the kind of faith required to accomplish momentous and even miraculous things. The passage we're looking at this morning has a lot of similarities to Matthew 17, 14 through 20, uh, which I was I had the privilege of preaching on a couple months ago. So much so that when Brett asked me if I could preach on this morning's passage, I went and read it and jokingly said, well, of course, all I just have to do is copy and paste and I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm good to go. Now, that's not exactly the case, as we'll see. There are some similarities, but there are also a lot of unique uh, differences that our passage offers to us this morning. Uh, so, so let's uh, read the passage together, and then I would ask you to pray with me again. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Please pray with me. Father, we give thanks for this morning. We give thanks for your word. Father, I recognize that uh, I am not uh, adequate to proclaim your word in all of its fullness, mighty as it is. Father, I ask that this morning as we all sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus, that you would use your word to instruct us, to correct us, to encourage us, to cause us to grow in our love for you and our desire for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage this morning... Uh, may be divided into two main sections. The first section we see in verses 18 through 19 has to do with the cursing of the fig tree due to its lack of fruit. And the second section in verses 20 through 22 deals with the question that the disciples ask Jesus about the withering of the fig tree and Jesus' instructions which follow on faith and prayer. And at first blush, as you're reading through the passage, at least as I was reading through the passage, it it seemed a bit unclear how verses 18 through 19 and verses 20 through 22 
uh, how they clearly relate to one another. Verses 20 to 22 are obviously given in response to the disciples' question about Jesus' action with the fig tree in verses 18 through 19. Um, And while that is the case, it initially looks like as we shift from 18 to 19 and go to 20 to 22, it initially looks like we're going from an object lesson that makes a theological point about the fruitlessness of the hypocritical Jewish leaders to a lesson on how to make a fig tree dry up and how to tell a mountain to go jump in the sea. But I think after taking the time to walk carefully through the passage, the connection between these sections will become more clear to us and actually demonstrate that what Jesus is doing here is instructing us on the deadly dangers of hypocrisy and a fruitless faith over against what is actually required in order to serve in Christ's kingdom. That is a genuine faith that does not doubt the word of God and his Messiah. So beginning with verses 18 through 19, we're met with this scene where Jesus is on his way back to the city, that is back to Jerusalem, after having stayed the night in Bethany. Bethany is the place he stayed following his entrance into Jerusalem and the temple precincts on the previous day, which Brett uh, taught, taught us about last week. Becoming hungry, Jesus notices a certain fig tree on the side of the road, but on closer inspection, he discovers that the fig tree has only leaves and no fruit. And so, of course, Jesus curses the fig tree and says, you're never producing fruit ever again resulting in the immediate withering of the tree. Some of you may remember those uh, Snickers commercials from a few years back where the commercial would begin with some kind of celebrity acting really angry or frustrated or lethargic or being just really unreasonable until someone hands them a Snickers bar. They take a bite and they're miraculously transformed back into their normal selves, their normal, well-balanced, reasonable selves. Um, I remember one in particular where the commercial opened with uh, the late actress Betty White playing football with a group of men and just getting pummeled and and thrown all over the field. And this goes on for quite some time until someone from the sidelines hands Betty White a Snickers bar, and suddenly, after she takes a bite, miraculously, it's no longer Betty White standing there, but the real guy who was feeling lousy and lethargic and getting thrown all over the field. Now, with a little pick-me-up via Snickers bar, he's ready to get back in the game and give it his all. The tagline of these commercials was, you're not you when you're hungry. Try a Snickers. Now, these commercials were funny, in part because I think we can all to some extent relate to this sensation of being really worn out or stressed or extra impatient and unreasonable because we're really hungry and if we could just get something to eat, then we would feel better. But if we don't get something to eat, and I mean soon, then someone is going to pay. The technical term, the scientific term for this sensation is hangry. A combination of the words hungry and angry. Now I bring this up knowing full well that it is just after 11 o'clock and... uh, 
perhaps some of your tummies are already beginning to rumble, and the further we go into this, I may become the object of your disdain as you become hangrier and hangrier the closer we get to lunchtime. Knowing all of that full well, I bring this up here because upon first reading this passage, it almost looks like Jesus was hangry. He was really hungry. He got excited because he saw maybe the prospect of something to eat on a fig tree by the road. But when he realizes that he's not going to get something to eat after all, he responds in a pretty extreme way, ensuring that that fig tree will never produce fruit ever again. Now, while it's not the case that Jesus is taking out his hangriness on a fig tree, that's not the case, there are still some who would question Jesus' actions here. They would take issue with what he does, claiming that it seems rare for Jesus to use his powers for such destructive purposes. Typically, we find Jesus using his power to heal and make people whole, not to kill plants. However, Jesus' use of his powers for such destructive effect or as a means to punish is actually not as unprecedented as some might claim. Just think, for example, about Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34, where Jesus casts out some demons into a herd of pigs, which then rush down a steep bank and drown in the sea. Or, even closer to the passage we're looking at this morning, we might recall Jesus' cleansing of the temple, where he goes in and drives money changers out of the temple with a whip. So it would seem that Jesus is not beyond using shocking and even destructive means to accomplish his purposes or deliver a message. And in attempting to make sense, to make further sense of Jesus' action taken against the fig tree, we should also recognize that not only are actions like this unprecedented in, not, not unprecedented in Jesus' own ministry, but they are also not without precedent among the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets... Many of them engaged in odd and provocative behavior, which would draw attention to the prophet and symbolize a lesson that went beyond the action itself. To name just a few examples, we might think of Isaiah 20, where Isaiah walks around naked and barefoot, symbolizing the manner in which Egypt and Cush would be led away by the Assyrians. Or we might think of Jeremiah placing a yoke upon his neck to symbolize the yoke of the king of Babylon upon the nations. Or even of Hosea, who is commanded to take a prostitute for his wife and to have children with this prostitute to symbolize how the Israelites were prostituting themselves by forsaking the Lord. These prophetic actions are often referred to as enacted parables. They're parables in action. And they resemble what Jesus does here in verses 18 through 19 with the fig tree. Like the actions of the prophets, the action of Jesus with the fig tree is somewhat odd and is intended to point to a lesson beyond the action itself. So then, if the cursing of the fig tree is an enacted parable similar to the enacted parables of the Old Testament prophets, We must ask the question, what exactly is this parable supposed to teach us? Well, beginning with the details of the action itself, we may find it odd that Jesus would be expecting a fig tree to provide him fruit to eat at this time of year. 
So it's around the Passover time in the spring. Uh, It's not the season for the harvesting of figs, which comes later in August. Mark even makes that point explicit in his gospel, in his uh, version of this this story. Um, He makes it explicit that it was not the season for figs, which may or could add to the further confusion about why Jesus would be expecting to find fruit from a tree that wouldn't even be producing this time of year. But this is where the detail about the leaves on the fig tree is relevant. Just to remind you, verse 19, Jesus sees the fig tree, he goes to it, and it says he found nothing on it but only leaves. What's the deal with the leaves? Well, it's actually not uncommon for fig trees, although the, the harvest of figs is not until later in the year, it's not uncommon for fig trees to be in leaf in late March or early April, around the Passover time. And with these leaves often came early green figs, which are edible, but usually weren't eaten because they didn't taste all that great. But someone who was walking along the road and was hungry enough, they would, they would be happy to eat them anyway. Um, at times, however, these early green figs that came with the leaves in the spring would fall off and all that would be left on the tree would be the leaves. And this, it seems, is precisely the reason why Jesus has chosen this particular tree to serve for his object lesson. This particular tree stood out because of its leaves, which, again, in many cases, gave the promise of the presence of fruit. But you look closer, and it becomes clear that this tree is actually only giving that, just the promise of the presence of fruit. There's not actually any fruit on it at all. Because of this, this particular fig tree serves perfectly to communicate the message that Jesus wants to convey. So taking these details about uh, fig trees and leaves and things like that, we also want to bring in the biblical use of the imagery of fig trees to help us understand what Jesus is getting at here. You may remember how fig trees are used elsewhere in Scripture, in the Old Testament, typically as a symbol for the good life that God expects from His people, or the lack thereof. The prophets would often describe the Lord's dismay over Israel's spiritual fruitlessness by describing a lack of figs. For example, we may consider Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, which reads, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine." nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Notice there in that passage from Jeremiah that even the leaves of the fig tree have withered, indicating that not even the promise of fruitfulness is present. Many commentators suggest that Micah 7, verses 1-6, through may be a a, a particularly... uh, a likely passage for what Matthew may have in mind here, because here the prophet expresses dismay over the corruption of Judah as a failure to find even the first ripe figs which he hungers for. 
Micah chapter 7 begins by saying, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. And the passage goes on in similar fashion. So in that passage from Micah 7, the corruption of Judah is depicted as fruitlessness. And if you continue reading in that passage, in Micah chapter 7, verse 4, you even get this language that the best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. So the best you can hope for isn't any kind of fruit, Micah is saying, but just briars and thorns. And so when we consider this fig tree imagery from the Old Testament within the context of Matthew 21, we start to get the picture of what Jesus is communicating through this enacted parable. So focusing more on the context of Matthew itself, we've looked at the the facts about the fig tree and when it's in leaf and what these leaves indicate. The fact that the leaves are there but no fruit shows that it only gives the promise of fruit but no fruit after all. We've talked about the Old Testament background of how this image of no figs being found on a fig tree indicates the fruitlessness of God's people. And now bringing in more of the context from Matthew's Gospel itself, we may notice, first of all, that this scene involving the cursing of the fig tree in verses 18-19 through comes immediately after Jesus' cleansing of the temple in Matthew 21-12-17. These scenes seem intentionally placed side by side. This is even more pronounced in Mark's Gospel, uh, where Mark... Uh, begins the scene of the cursing of the fig tree up to Jesus' cursing of that tree. And then he describes the cleansing of the temple. And then he returns to the fig tree after that scene to provide a lesson to the disciples on faith. And so by using this, this sandwiching technique, the temple cleansing uh, and the fig tree scene, Mark shows, are intended to be read alongside one another and to be mutually interpretive. And the overall emphasis in Mark's gospel appears to be the fruitlessness of the temple and its impending destruction. Like the fig tree, the temple is barren. And also like the fig tree, the temple will soon be destroyed. And I think there's a similar emphasis at play here in Matthew chapter 21, especially in light of the posture of the Jewish leaders in response to Jesus and those who accept Jesus. In that scene of the cleansing of the temple, which we, which we talked about last week, when Jesus begins to heal the blind and the lame in the temple, and the children begin to cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David, the response of the chief priests and scribes to this is not joy or faith, but indignation. They reject the truthful testimony of even the young children about who Jesus is and what He has come to accomplish. Like the fig tree, the Jewish leaders 
have put forth the appearance of fruit, but actually they are entirely void of fruit and will therefore soon be replaced by others who will bear such fruit. And I think that point is actually going to be made even more clearly later in Matthew 21 with uh, the parables that Jesus tells uh, at, at that point in the chapter. We can even broaden our scope out uh, uh, even further to Matthew's gospel as a whole to see how this imagery of fruit bearing is used throughout Matthew's gospel. Just to provide a few examples uh, in Matthew's gospel about how this language is used. Matthew 3, 8 says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3, 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew seven sixteen through 20 You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew twelve thirty three, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And again, coming later in Matthew chapter 21 with Jesus' parable of the tenants, Jesus makes the statement, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And so, all of this together points us to the significance of Jesus' enacted parable in the cursing of the fig tree. The Jewish leaders had put forth the appearance of piety, of righteousness, of fruitfulness. But actually, upon closer inspection, it turns out that they failed to produce any fruit at all. Their hypocrisy is what's condemned here. And soon they will be destroyed and replaced by others who will bear such fruit for the kingdom. Now, the disciples witness this. They notice what's happened to the fig tree. And verse 20 says that as a result they marvel, and then they ask Jesus a question. And the question they ask Jesus, interestingly enough, is not, What does this mean, Jesus? But how is it that the fig tree withered so fast like that? To which Jesus responds with instructions about faith and prayer. Um, so, So again, notice that the disciples are not asking about what the cursing of the fig tree means, but rather how it is that the fig tree withered so quickly. They aren't asking Jesus to dive into the imagery of fig trees in the Old Testament and to speak to the fruitlessness of the priests and scribes like we just did. They just noticed that Jesus commanded a fig tree to wither, and then it did, and they want to know how something like that could happen. And it seems at first, given Jesus' response in verses 21 through 22, that, that Jesus is also shifting His focus from the meaning of His enacted parable to this more practical question of how something like withering a fig tree uh, could 
could take place. But, again, as I mentioned earlier, if we continue to bear in mind the symbolic message of the withered fig tree, to which we have already seen, then I think by the end we find that Jesus' response is actually not shifting focus as much as you might think. Rather, having spoken to the fruitlessness of the hypocritical Jewish leaders, Jesus is now informing us what is required for true fruitfulness and what that means for those who trust in Christ without doubting, like the Jewish leaders. So, focusing on Jesus' words more specifically in verses 20-22, through let me read them again just to, so that we can keep our bearings here. Verse 20, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So, notice, first of all, as I mentioned at the beginning of of the sermon, that Jesus says here something very similar to what we saw back in Matthew 17. When the disciples, in that context, unsuccessfully attempted to cast a demon out of a boy who was having violent seizures, there Jesus tells them that the reason they couldn't do this was their little faith. Right? He says, for, I sa- for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Like here in Matthew 21, Jesus speaks of the need for faith in order to accomplish incredible and even miraculous things. And He even uses the same sort of image of commanding mountains to move. And you may remember a few months ago when we looked at this passage in Matthew 17 that we observed how Jesus' words there are often misunderstood or misused as if Jesus is interested primarily in the quantity of faith required to accomplish great things. And we pointed out that Jesus is not actually interested in the quantity of faith. It's not, it's not like I've got to make sure I have enough fuel in my car to get to the destination of my road trip. But rather, Jesus is interested in the quality of faith, which depends ultimately upon the object of our faith. And we know this is the case from Matthew 17 because Jesus says that even faith like a mustard seed, the tiniest of seeds, is sufficient to move mountains. Jesus' critique of the disciples there and their little faith is not a criticism of how they don't have enough faith, they've not filled their faith tank up enough, but rather of the poor quality of their faith. This is the sense in which it is small or little. It's poor in quality. They're looking to their own strength and ability and relying upon that to accomplish these miraculous feats. But Jesus reminds them, by the way, right after He demonstrates with ease that He has absolutely no problem casting out the demon from the boy, that it's not their ability that matters, but the ability of the one in whom they put their trust the object of their faith. 
And Jesus' words about faith and the ability to command mountain to move have similar kind of emphasis here in Matthew chapter 21, though there are differences as well. While the passage in Matthew 17 can often be abused to tell people that if something doesn't happen that you try to do in faith, well, it didn't happen because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't believe hard enough. In Matthew 21, Jesus' words, if you have faith and do not doubt, could be used somewhat differently. could be used to say something like, if you pray, you make a request to God, and your prayer wasn't answered in precisely the way that you requested, well, then it must be because you doubted. Doubt must have crept into your mind when you were making that request. And of course, this is a conclusion that has the potential to bring about all kinds of unnecessary guilt and sorrow among those who have earnestly and sincerely and confidently prayed for things like the miraculous healing of sick loved ones, or the restoration of a broken relationship, or the salvation of friends and family, only to see their prayers go seemingly unanswered. Did it really not happen exactly as they had asked? Because when they were making the request, a little bit of doubt crept in. How do we deal with this? Well, some will want to make the referent here a little more specific. So, uh, in an effort to, to, well, not just in an effort to respond to this question, but, but uh, trying to understand what Jesus is getting at with this language of moving a mountain into the sea, some will suggest that Jesus' words in verse 21 are referring to a specific mountain. After all, Jesus doesn't say, you'll notice, just move any, mountain, any old mountain. He uses the language of this mountain. He says you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. And so maybe he has in mind a particular mountain near where they are standing. And so if that is the case, given where they are geographically uh, on their way from Bethany to Jerusalem, there are a couple of different candidates for what mountain he could have in mind. He could either be pointing to Mount Zion, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, or to the Mount of Olives. And so if Jesus is referring to the the removal of the Temple Mount, then he may be anticipating the destruction of the Temple and the sacrificial system for which it stands, something which was prefigured already by his driving out of the money changers in the previous episode and will be emphasized again in his upcoming prophecy in Matthew 24. But if Jesus is referring to the Mount of Olives, then he could be alluding to the Old Testament anticipation of the removal of this mountain in Zechariah 14. If you go back and look at Zechariah 14, Zechariah 14 describes the nations surrounding Jerusalem and taking the city And then the Lord goes out and fights against these nations as when He fights on a day of battle. Then in Zechariah 14, 4-5, it says, On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, 
so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the, mount, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And so while Zechariah 14 does not describe the Mount of Olives being hurled into the sea, some will, will point to uh, the, the, the original language where it talks about uh, the, the, the mountain being split from east to west, uh, the way that it describes uh, it being split to the east actually uses uh, the term having to do with the sea. So the, the, towards the, the sea, which is, which is to the east, towards, or to, to the west, excuse me, to the west, uh, which is the Mediterranean there. Um, but it doesn't explicitly say the mountain will be thrown into the sea. Even so, it does speak of the mountain's removal. And in this instance, in Zechariah 14, it seems to serve as an escape route from Jerusalem, which is under attack, and to announce the arrival and the intervention of the Lord. And so, if Jesus has in mind the removal of the mountain, Mount of Olives in Matthew 21, when He speaks of this mountain, then it could be that Jesus is further anticipating that great and terrible day of the Lord that is coming, which He will speak about further in coming chapters in Matthew's Gospel. Now, of course... Whichever mountain you think is in view here, and, and most seem to prefer the, the allusion to the Mount of Olives, we still find ourselves wondering what exactly this means for the disciples, if that is what Jesus has in mind. If Jesus is anticipating the removal of the Mount of Olives from Zechariah 14, then what exactly does He mean that by having faith, the disciples will command this mountain to be thrown into the sea? Is Jesus saying that if they pray for the coming of the Son of Man, then they will remove the mountain? And thus the Lord will use their prayers as, as a kind of means to fulfill that prophecy? Or does Jesus mean that they will uh, sort of metaphorically remove the mountain by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and thus providing a way of escape to those who believe, similar to how the Mount of Olives is removed for people to escape out of the besieged Jerusalem in Zechariah 14. It's not entirely clear. <clears throat> and <clears throat> lest we be tempted to uh, focus on a more specific referent in an attempt to kind of make more sense about Jesus' language of having faith and not doubting... Um, Matters are further complicated in verse 22 when we get a more general statement, not only tied to Jesus' language about the mountain. So even if Jesus is subtly alluding to the removal of the Mount of Olives at the coming of Son of Man here in verse 21, the application of His lesson, it seems, still extends beyond that particular event. So it could be that Jesus does not actually intend to allude to any specific eschatological expectation associated with the Temple Mount or the Mount of Olives. It could be that he doesn't actually have these things in mind, but that he is simply using this mountain that happens to be right here next to us to make a point about faith that does not doubt. Not only you ask about the fig tree, not only will you be able to do small things like 
causing a fig tree to wither, but you will be capable of even more monumental things like telling a mountain to be thrown into the sea. The scale of what can be accomplished by one who has faith and does not doubt is far greater than what we could fathom. And, of course, as many will point out, while there is no record of any disciple or even of Jesus himself moving a literal physical mountain, throughout the history of the Christian uh, church, we have example after example of mountainous difficulties that have been removed when people have prayed in faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so finally, in verse 22, Jesus adds this statement. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And it's at this point that we can try to try to tie together some of the things we have been observing along the way to wrestle with the meaning of this incredible statement that Jesus makes. This incredible statement, incredibly difficult statement. How can it be that if we have faith and do not doubt that we will do things comparable to moving mountains? And how can it be that we will receive whatever we ask in prayer if we have faith? How does one read these verses and not come to the conclusion of those who say that if your prayer isn't answered exactly how you asked it, then it's because you doubted or because you didn't have faith. How do, we, how do we read these and not come to that conclusion? Well, in response to that, we can begin by pointing out some, some, some things that we already know, um, things that Jesus' words cannot mean. Okay, There are certain things about his words in verse 22 that they could not mean. Uh, first off, when Jesus says that you will receive whatever you ask in prayer, he cannot mean that you can ask for any selfish, foolish, or sinful thing you want and just have enough confidence and God is left with no option but to grant you that request. That's not what Jesus means. But also, it cannot mean that if everything you ask for, even sincerely, does not come about or does not come about in the way you had hoped, that you necessarily must have had some doubt that prevented it from happening. If this were the case, then we would have to conclude that the reason Paul's thorn was not removed in 2 Corinthians 12 was because he didn't pray in faith or because he doubted when he asked God to remove it. And not the the explicit reason that's given in the text. That through his weakness, Christ might be... Glorified. But if it cannot mean these things, how are we to understand what Jesus' words do mean? Well, to begin with, remember the lesson of the fig tree. Go back to the beginning of the passage. The cursing of the fig tree served as an object lesson, an enacted parable that was intended to condemn the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy and fruitlessness while also evoking the disciples' amazement and thus providing an opportunity for Jesus to explain what is required to be truly faithful. And so this is, this is why, the, why I say that the, the, the focus appears to shift initially, but it actually doesn't shift as much as you might think. The, the cursing of the fig tree kind of pulls double duty. It makes this point 
about uh, the Jewish leaders and their hypocrisy. And it also serves to draw the disciples' attention so that Jesus can make a point about what is required for true fruitfulness in the kingdom. In order to be truly faithful, one must possess a faith not possessed by the chief priests and the scribes. That is, a faith that trusts in Jesus, the one through whom unbelievable things can be done. The chief priests and the scribes' faith was a fruitless faith. It was filled with doubt. Jesus says, you, if you have faith and do not doubt, their faith was filled with doubt because they rejected Jesus and those who accepted Jesus' teachings because they did not possess the true fruits of righteousness, but only gave off the air or the facade of righteousness. And because of this, their faith cannot bear the fruit of the kingdom. Again, expanding out beyond our passage, we can go all the way back to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, we find Jesus giving instruction on the proper way to pray. And there He highlights the centrality of a genuine, humble, faith-filled prayer life over against a hypocritical, self-absorbed, and self-righteous prayer practice. And if if you were to go back and look at Matthew 6 and compare it with what we have here in Matthew 21, I think it's interesting to notice that Jesus uses the language of receiving in association with His teaching on prayer in both places. And notice what He says. In Matthew 6, when He's talking about the hypocrites who love to parade themselves around in the synagogues and the street corners so that they can be seen by others when they pray, What does Jesus say? He says that they have already received their reward. On the other hand, those who don't pray in these showy ways so that they can be seen, but instead have faith when they pray, they are said to receive whatever they ask in prayer. I think this contrast between the prayer life of the hypocrite and the faithful Uh, further illustrates this contrast between the fruitlessness of those who deny Christ and those who have faith and do not doubt. The hypocrites, when they pray, do not receive what they ask for in prayer because they actually already receive what they really want. They don't really want what it is they're asking for in prayer. What they really want is to be seen. And to be honored by those who see them. The faithful, however, who are not interested in being seen, but who instead desire to honestly and humbly present their requests to God, if they ask in faith, will receive whatever they ask in prayer. So, so it's a question of what, what is ultimately desired here, right? Right? The hypocrites, they don't really desire what they're asking for. What they actually desire, they have already received, which is to be seen and honored by those who see them. But those who pray in faith, Jesus says, receive what they ask for. But the question still remains. How can we take Jesus at His word here? 
When we can think of examples from Scripture and from our own personal experience where faithful believers have earnestly, confidently, faithfully asked God to do mighty and miraculous things, but their prayers go seemingly unanswered. How can it be true that the faith-filled requests of the saints can go seemingly unanswered while Jesus says that those who ask in faith will receive whatever they ask in prayer? How can those two things coexist? And this can be a difficult issue to consider, but I think that the answer ultimately comes down to this. Even if the Christian's prayers are not, ans- are not answered, or seemingly not answered, or not answered in the way that they had hoped or expected, As it turns out, the Christian always receives what he or she asks for in prayer because above all else, their supreme desire is that God's will would be done. One who truly has faith, first off, is not going to bring purely selfish requests, but genuinely trusts God and desires that His will be done above all else. Above all else, no matter what request is brought before the Lord, true faith, without doubt, dictates that what we desire above all else is for God's perfect will to be accomplished. In this way then, even if our requests are not answered in the way we might have hoped, even if physical healing does not occur, even if our broken relationships are not restored, even if our loved ones don't repent and come to faith in Jesus, true faith that does not doubt desires more than all of these specific things that God's perfect will would be done. Because true faith recognizes that while we don't always understand why God would not answer or seemingly not answer our requests in exactly the way that we have asked, We know that God is always working all things out for His glory and our good. And the beauty of this is that because the object of our faith is the one who made the mountains and the stars and the seas, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, and the one who sustains all of creation according to His good pleasure, we know that mountain-moving-like things can and do take place. They are not beyond His reach. We know that the Lord is capable of healing. He is capable of providing for our needs. He is more than able to draw our loved ones to Himself and to save them. And we know that if we ask Him in faith, He will fulfill our desires in accordance with His good and perfect will. At the same time, if we truly have faith and do not doubt, our supreme desire above all else and within every request that we bring before our gracious and loving Heavenly Father is that His name be glorified, that His will be done on earth as in heaven. Because such true faith does not doubt that in this, in the glorification of God through the coming of His kingdom and the fulfillment of His perfect will, in this is provided the true desire of our hearts. Something far greater than we could ever think or imagine when we humbly and faithfully bring our requests to the Lord. And finally, if if there's still some confusion about what exactly that would look like, I think that the Lord Himself provides us with 
the supreme example of what this looks like. Consider a few chapters from now when Jesus agonizes in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of His crucifixion. Deeply troubled and sorrowful because He knew that His hour had come. Jesus spends hours praying to the Father. And what does He say? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Now, since I don't think we would want to say that Christ doubted, we probably wouldn't say that this is an example of Christ having faith and doubting. But if it's not, then in what way can we say that Christ is is displaying here a faith that does not doubt? The answer comes in the words He says next. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then a few verses later, He reiterates again, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, if we assume that Jesus would not be one to display a faith that has doubts, then on the basis of this example, we cannot conclude that a faith that doubts is one that makes specific, sincere, and not sinful requests, which may or may not be answered, as we have asked them. If Jesus, who knew full well what He had to do, could pray to the Father and ask if the cup could pass from Him, then we, who do not know the mind of God and cannot predict everything that He has ordained in His good and perfect will, then we can certainly expect that there will be things that we ask for which are ultimately not going to be brought about or not brought about in the way that we might have hoped. And so how can we have faith and not doubt? How can we trust that in whatever we ask, we will receive if we ask in faith? Look to Jesus. Follow the example of our Lord in the garden. Make your requests known to God. Have faith and do not doubt. And above all else, desire His will to be accomplished. Doing so guarantees that we always receive what we ask for if we have faith. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would um, plant your word deep in our heart, that we would take your words to heart and we would seek to apply them to our own prayers, Lord. Remind us, Father, that You and Your ways are far higher than ours. That Your plans are far greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And remind us, Lord, that if we have faith and we trust, we desire Your will above all else, that we always will receive what we ask for. Amen.